Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're lucky enough to have Chip Israel from the Lighting Design Alliance on the show. Chip is the CEO and founder of LDNA in sunny Southern California. Chip has had a lifetime experience and today is here to discuss with us what it's been like to be in business for 28 years as an independent lighting designer. Welcome to the show, Chip. Hi, Sam. It's great to be here. It's good to see you. Thanks for inviting me in to uh, spend some time at your office. I have to admit, in December, it's nice to be in California, where it's a little bit warmer than where I normally would be this time of year in Denver. I think it's about 15 degrees today. Do you have any fun Christmas plans? Um, No, I'm going to go to the snow like everybody else. Of course. Are you a big skier or snowboarder? What's your favorite thing to do in the snow? We do both. That ski, snowboard, snowmobile, play in the snow, and hopefully a lot of shoveling. The Sierras are on forecast to have some snow, I think. Good luck with that. I know you guys had a record year last year. Yes, thank you. Well, hey, I wanted to catch up with you a little bit about what it's like to be 28 years into your career, running your own independent lighting design firm. Let's take one step back to the very beginning, though. Why did you name the company the Lighting Design Alliance? So many other lighting companies are named after their last names. Well, we wanted to create an opportunity for all of our employees, and it was really never about my own personal ego. We just really wanted to create a firm that had the potential for growth, not only for us as a firm, but also for the individuals within the firm. And I always thought that it would be better to have a generic name And we came up with Alliance because we really wanted to create a team that would create an alliance both internally and externally. Internally, I would mean that everybody would have a say. And the idea is that we can create a stronger team by giving everybody access to whatever they need, but also to provide input. And honestly, many of our employers are a lot smarter than I am and we wanna take advantage of that knowledge. And then the external, that would be using the Alliance. We create teams with our clients and with our architects because every design is, I'm gonna call it a compromise of ideas, budgets, or technical issues, whatever it may be, but we wanna work together, and that's allowed us to expand that knowledge and that, I'm gonna call it friendship. Our clients have become our friends, and that's how we've been able to grow, and more importantly, our employees have grown. For example, Kelly. Kelly Jones within our firm started right out of school, developed clients, kept them happy. There'd be more clients. We put support people underneath her, eventually would run an entire studio and now is actually a principal or co-owner of our firm. So all of this creating an opportunity for growth and really a future for our employees. Someday I may not be here, but we will make sure that they have a continual home here at Lighting Design Alliance. I think it's really cool that you are always forward thinking to say this was going to grow beyond me. But when it started, how many people were at the company? When it started, we had three and a lot of sleepless nights. And now we're just under 30 people. We've been pretty much this number for the last decade or so. And I don't know what the future is. I would say we want to be the best. That doesn't mean the biggest. What we want to do is get the right type of commissions, be able to be very expressive with lighting design. And I think one of the key components is always provide excellent service because that's what keeps our clients. It's not just the fancy designs or the pretty renderings at the beginning but it's the service, it's out there in the field, solving problems, executing the design, 
educating them on what the projects are and how to maintain those. Those all create a successful client. And when we do it right, we should get repeat business from the architect, from the owner, maybe even from the electrical engineer or contractor. So one successful job could lead to multiple future jobs. When you look at everything that you've accomplished, do you feel like that there was a method that you established along the way? Or from the very beginning, did you have it ingrained in you? What was appropriate when it came to being a lighting designer and what you had to execute on on a daily basis? Mentorship was very, very important. So I was very fortunate to go to Penn State University And I say I learned illuminating engineering at that point. I learned technical types of skills. And that's not putting down the program, but it wasn't until I worked in my second position for Grinald Associates and I worked directly under Ray Grinald. He taught me how to see, how to portray ideas into architecture and really how to create lighting designs, not just designs that had lighting. And when you created those lighting designs, what is it that you feel like you were always trying to achieve? How did you look at and approach lighting as an opportunity and a challenge? Well, it probably is the training under Ray, but also the time. You know, lighting design has gone from very, very architectural, and then there was a flair with a lot of architectural or entertainment type of lighting to very decorative types. So what I really say is we got a very wide, broad base of projects, and that really helped us find out what we like to do, but more importantly, develop our own style. And I would say that for any young person out there, don't try to emulate someone. What you need to do is to create your own style and then maybe follow up with IES to make sure that the designs meet a certain criteria or performance standpoint. But that's the last place you should start. We like to say from an architectural standpoint, we want to feature the features. Our best jobs are when you don't notice the lighting. And it's really true. We want to create spaces for people that are comfortable or maybe enhance their productivity or that sell more garments or that create comfortable environments so everybody feels like they're sitting around a campfire even though it's literally in Orlando, Florida. These are all things that lighting has the power to do. And to me, it's really coming up with the correct solution for the client at that time. You said that the best projects you can potentially have are the ones where you don't even see the lighting. Dive in just a little bit more for me on that. When you say don't see the lighting, why shouldn't people see lighting? I don't want to say fixtures are ugly, but at the end of the day, if it's in a hospitality environment and there's this great wood wall, I would much rather have concealed architectural light that provide a perfect wash of light onto that wood so the wood becomes warm and inviting. At the other end of the spectrum, if we have a very heavily textured, perhaps stone wall, maybe now we use the lighting technique of grazing where we put the lights closer to it and we want the stone to really graze so that we're showing the nooks, the crannies, the shadows, the texture of the wall. So what we really try to do is to align our designs to where the architects or the interior designers are spending their money comes down to budget. We don't have unlimited budgets on most of our projects and neither do the architects or the interior designers. So where they are creating their focal points and usually they're at visual terminuses or they're reinforcing graphic wayfinding. And I'll talk about that a little bit more, but for these visual terminuses, which could be artwork, they could be architecture, they could be interior services. If we highlight those and they become the dominant element in the space, 
then the rest of the lighting becomes, I'm going to say, secondary to it. And we want drama in these spaces. We want bright spaces. We want dark spaces. We want bright. And it's very frustrating when people say, well, what are foot candles or the Lux calculations? Because it doesn't really matter. Our eyes don't see that way. What we really want you to do is use lighting to see what you want or what we want them to see, which is very important. And I'll use that second point now, which we call graphic wayfinding. We use lighting as a navigation tool, communication tool. So in other words, take a hotel. When you first come to the hotel, the port cashier should be the brightest element. So you're confused. You don't know where to go. That leads you to the front door. It doesn't have to be a hotel. It could be a hospital. Think about it. Your child's injured. You're in a panic state. If the entrance canopy of the hospital is the brightest thing, you'll instinctively know where to go. Then if we come inside the space and the registration desk, whether it's the front dyer or the back wall is the brightest thing, we're instinctively bringing people through the spaces. And it doesn't matter how bright the floor is. It's really about the vertical surfaces in those areas. And we found out that as energy codes get tighter and tighter, lighting the walls are still really critical. It makes the spaces feel brighter. It helps with the well-being of those spaces. So some of these principles that we learn from people like Ray Grinald and some of the original lighting designers, they learn from observation. We've learned by emulation and by documentation. They just are good principles that worked 50 years ago and they still work today. Bottom line, the sun still comes up every day and it lights up this world. Architectural lighting sounds like it's evolved over time because the fixtures, the luminaires, the technology has changed. But fundamentally, as a lighting designer, you're designing with light and it doesn't really matter how it's delivered. It's what effect that it can accomplish. Right. I've heard it say there's nothing new, right? We can downlight, we can uplight, we can sidelight. But the thing that has changed is technology. Yes, LEDs are new and they last forever, according to the manufacturers. But the really enhancement is they're smaller. Now they give us a better opportunity to get the light in tighter packages and we can hide them. We still have to basically use the physics of lighting because just because we can make a two inch cove doesn't mean it works well as a two inch cove, but technology has allowed us to implement our designs that perhaps we couldn't have a couple decades ago. I want to talk about change just a little bit more. Talk to me about what it's been like to change and grow as a lighting designer and a CEO and a founder of a lighting design company. Where have you grown along the way the most? And as you look back on what's going on today, what are some things that are memorable for you? The technology of deliverables has changed incredibly. Um, when we first started, it was all about meetings and documentations. And if you were old enough to remember the days before cell phones, it was really critical to meet face to face around the same table which honestly I miss these days. You could sit around the table and as a collaborative effort, create a design in unison with the architect, the interior designer, and the lighting designer. Technology has evolved. So I'll start at the very beginning. We would have one piece of, let's say vellum for the young people. That's a thin piece of literally plastic that you would draft on. And the architect would draw the walls. Then either that vellum or a sepia would go to the interior designer. 
and they would draw the ceilings on it. Then it would come to us, the lighting designers, we would draw the lights on it, maybe the circuiting, and then that same piece of paper would go to the electrical engineer who would circuit up the lights. And the beauty of that is the drawing was coordinated, right? Because it's the same background. Technology has then come, we have AutoCAD. And the same four layers that I just talked to you about are now those AutoCAD layers. So it makes sense. The only problem is how we deliver that. Where before it was the same piece of paper, now we have instantaneous changes. So as we're doing the lighting, the architect could still be changing the walls. And then when the things get published, now we have inconsistency. And it's taken the next step with BIM 360 or some of these on the fly, I'm gonna call it universal 3D CAD programs. Literally everybody is working on a design that is constantly evolving. So nothing ever gets set or frozen. So the problem is we've taken away the personal interaction of the design. And as a result, we probably have less coordinated drawings in a more litigious situation where we tend to need to provide extra documentation to eliminate cost overruns and back charges. When you talk about what's going on with technology and the fact that it's created an environment where people are meeting less, do you think that it lacks creativity? I don't think that it lacks creativity. I think it's harder for us to explain our ideas and we're using technology to fill that void. I think it's very beneficial to have technologies like go-to meetings, blue beams, where we can document ideas and we can send so many images. And to give you an example, most of the design ideas we now get from interior designers are Pinterest pages right? Images that they send over and say, this is what I'm trying to recreate. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's come down to an instantaneous expectation that as soon as they send an email, they expect an instant result back, even though you may be in another meeting or you might even be on an airplane to a job site. For people that are curious, because not everybody's as involved in lighting as you are or the people at this studio are, how has instant gratification hurt the ability for a lighting designer to effectively do their job? I think the world has sped up, but I also think that a lot of clients appreciate and value lighting design. So therefore, if they're paying this additional cost to their project, most of the time they want to listen to them and try to integrate it into the design. Now, having said that, many times we'll meet with an architect and want to talk to them about the daylighting or the setting of the building or why is the east facade the same as the south facade, even though we know that the sun patterns are totally different? You may get comments back such as, the BIM model's developed, I don't want to change it, or this is what's been presented to the client. So there are times that you hit certain amount of frustration that you're trying to make the project better for the end user, the client, or more importantly, the occupants that will actually be inside of those spaces and you get some resistance either because of budget or time deadline in order to execute the budget. Even though technology has really changed how we document this project, one thing hasn't changed. Designers need to go to the field. They have to do mock-ups to evaluate how the light will affect the materials they're looking at, but more importantly, they have to monitor the job site to make sure the lights are actually put in the positions where they want, that the details they've created are being followed. And probably the most important is the light at the very end of the job. 
who goes in and focuses the light fixtures, who maybe sets colors if you have an RGB or an RGBA type of thing, and more importantly, who sets the controls, the intensity of the light. That's really where you take an engineered process and you really create art with it by setting those balances. Like I said in the beginning, you wanna create drama. You can't do that sitting 2,000 miles away in your conference room. You really have to be out in the field and see it and affect it. I think that there's a lot there and obviously lighting has evolved in terms of how the design process has to come together and be delivered. But fundamentally, lighting design has, is, and always will be painting with light. Let's take a quick break and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about what the future of lighting design looks like and how painting with light moving forward might be a little bit different. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick. The LightPod is sponsored by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and, well, a little bit of entertainment. We bring news and stories straight to you via quick two-minute videos or something that's maybe just a little bit longer. Check us out at www.lighteye.com. That's L-Y-T-E-I.com. And welcome back. We're going to catch up with Chip just a little bit more about what's on the horizon for lighting and where it's going in the future. Chip, you were talking a little bit about what it means to paint with light and how technologies evolve, but what fundamentally lighting has always stayed the same. What's the best part about having grown this company into 28 years of success? Talk to me a little bit about how you approach things today and where they're going. I don't have a crystal ball. But when you talk about what the future of lighting is, currently everyone says it's controls, okay? And the fact that we can now do more with the light systems that we already have. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. I don't think anybody will have any big panic with that. Then there's this whole new idea of smart cities or Li-Fi or intelligent type of lighting system, IOT. And you can just look at what's at Light Fair or what the seminars are at some of the annual conferences. And they're all talking about, we can do this. And I got really excited about it. And I went to one of the biggest developers in Los Angeles and I said, isn't this great? We can introduce this to all of your buildings. And he said, I don't care. I can't charge any more rent. So we see all of these publications and right now it's about health and well-being. The idea of we can replicate sunlight. And I think that that's incredible incredibly stupid maybe is the right way to say it in the fact that instead of creating artificial or electric light to simulate daylight why don't we design our buildings better why don't we do better fenestration better glare control bring natural light into our buildings because i can remember when some european manufacturers brought out the circadian lighting probably about 15 to 20 years ago and it was so great and it was talked about and it was studied but the reality of it is it's not efficient it's not probably to the intensities that we really need in order to affect the biological changes in, within these people and my whole point is rather than buying a color tunable lighting system i'd rather put in a window so that's my little belief that we should start with better architectural design and i'm not saying that these cannot be implemented i'm just saying they're a tool or a technique to cover up bad architectural design so i'd really encourage everybody empower them to go out understand daylighting but more importantly 
tell someone about it, tell an architect, try to get them to do it. And that's how we're going to change the world. You know, there's not enough surface on our buildings to put photo cells. So I keep coming back to the most efficient light, the one we turn off. Okay, and how do we do that? It's by having controls that can sense when people are in there and turn them off. I'm not saying we need to spy on the people in the spaces. I'm just saying that we need reliable controls both inside and outside. Because if there's any potential of a failure, especially on the exterior, say a parking lot fixture that may have an on off type of setting, the owners are just gonna bypass it. And now we have not saved any energy or we've actually used more energy at the long run. So the whole idea is lighting is going to change. We're gonna have newer technology that will come and go. You know, LEDs are great and they're gonna get better, but probably within the next 10 years, something will replace them. And when the LEDs came, it was called a disruptive technology. And boy, was it. We had manufacturers that typically would bring a new light fixture out maybe every two years. Well, they had to do it in six months, right? Because the technology was changing so much. So they've gotten better at doing their job. And we've gotten away from just tin boxes with light shoved in them. But it also created a new phenomenon. Basically, we got really good at creating glare-free fixtures with fluorescent lighting. We had volumetric fixtures. We had deep cell parabolics. And both the eye and designers in general realized that we had to create better spaces for people. The day that LEDs came out, all we did is we start shoving them in boxes with white lenses on there and we recreated the same problems that were basically 40 years previous to that. And maybe our iPad screens are a little bit better or they're diffuse or whatever, but we still have to remember about the quality of lighting. And that's really about the people and it takes research. Okay, it takes education. And that's really what I'm passionate about is how do we teach the existing design generation, but the future ones. And I think the future is bright for lighting design, but we really have to make sure that we support our schools and that we make sure they have the funding and they have the instructors that can teach and actually excite students to go into lighting because that's where our future workforce will come. I can agree with you that lighting definitely has a bright future and it's wonderful to know that there are universities and institutions supporting the future of lighting design and the people that will practice it. But I think people look at lighting design and wonder what's the benefit and value out of having a independent lighting designer as opposed to somebody within a general design firm, architect, interiors, engineering, even reps now doing the quote unquote lighting design. Right. Um, very deep and a tricky type of question for sure and things. We value independence. First of all, we're not trying to sell fixtures, okay? So for example, if we wanna do perfect wall washing on a wall, if we choose six light fixtures, that's probably because we did it. Could we do it with four? Perhaps. But if we put 12 on there, once again, if it was for wall washing, it's not because we're getting a financial incentive. So that's what differentiates independent lighting designers, perhaps from the sales channels, not saying that there's anything wrong with it, but as a designer, you can pick anything from your palette because you have that independence. So we like to pick the right fixture that meets the client's needs. Many times that's from multiple manufacturers. And if you only work for one manufacturer, perhaps your client wouldn't get the best results. So I think it's really important to give the client the ability. The other thing is 
all we do is lighting design. So every day we're trying to create better spaces for people by using lighting as our design tool. And we think that that independence and that focus just on lighting makes us better because one day we're doing a parking garage. The next day we could be doing a high tech conference room and maybe taking a parking garage fixture, flipping it upside down would become the cool, neat, indirect light fixture. By having worked on a very broad base of projects, it gives us access to all manufacturers. And once again, it comes down to, we will specify the best quality that our clients can afford for their projects. I think it goes without saying that the fact that you're independent and have always had your client's best interests has obviously been successful for you and the team here at LDNA. You have 28 years of experience. There's a couple books sitting here on the table with probably thousands and thousands of projects. There's people out there who don't have that luxury though of 28 years of experience and a, re- and a reputation behind them. What would you say to young and upcoming designers who maybe are at a smaller firm or are sitting within a, a bigger umbrella right now? I'd probably give the following advice. First of all, overnight success takes 20 years. Nobody becomes rich and famous overnight, and it's hard work. I'm not gonna lie to anybody, it's potentially long hours. So as a young designer, I would say get involved and volunteer. And what I mean by that is some of the best relationships I have are with IALD members, Randy Burkett, Nancy Clanton, Howard Branston, all of these people I met as a very young person and I learned so much for them. I volunteered, I sit on IES committees. Those are how you deal with these people and you learn from their experience. If you're in a small firm, And when one of your other workers goes out to focus a job, volunteer to go out with them. You may not get paid. Okay, but what it does is it gives you experiences. And I was very fortunate to work for Ray Grinald and I got mentored directly, but I also probably got 10 years of experience in five years because I worked a lot of extra time and was able to be exposed to a lot of different projects. And I'd really say whatever you volunteer, whatever, effort you put in, you'll get rewarded from it. And I know I sound like, you know, an old boomer when I say, you know, nobody wants to do this, but the IES, getting involved there, and or just go to the presentations. I guarantee you, I learned something on every presentation and you can learn something too, but you have to go and you have to participate and really to get the full value out of that. You know, mentorship has been something that was obviously a big part of you developing into who you are today. That fast-paced technology has started to catch up with the world, but you mentioned how lighting has always stayed the same. And in the world of instant gratification, over and over again, the answer is be patient, work hard, and trust that certain things that have come into play will not change. Yeah, I really think that it's everybody's job to mentor everybody else. And we have entry-level people that actually know more about certain things than some of our senior design people. And to be in an environment where you can share, you can teach other people, but you can learn from them actually creates this true studio. And that's why I really like a physical work office. By putting everybody together, you can learn from them. And if we're all sitting in our own little sofas at home, 
we really lose that and it's a hard thing to understand but maybe 20 years when you look back you can actually see where you've learned where you've evolved and where your career can actually grow by being involved in those little side conversations you know i recently had a conversation with howard branston of which i'm sure you've had a few with him along your career as well but howard told me that the key to his success was to just always have an open mind and if you were going to do anything do it to the best of your possible ability moving forward what does an open mind and working hard and doing everything to the best of your ability look like for the studio at the lighting design alliance Okay, well, two comments. First of all, I think we all owe Howard and maybe the forefathers, or with Leslie Wheel, the four mothers of the lighting design community, because they established this and they created an industry. They started it. We all kind of walked in. And I think we owe them a lot. And I really owe Howard a lot. I was a young employee at Lutron Electronics. Howard came in and did an educational lunchtime. And basically his one question was, what color is your shadow? And Lutron was a bunch of engineers and nobody really cared, but it challenged me. And I'm starting to think, well, the sun's warm, the sky is cooler, what color is this? And then I realized lighting is a lot more than foot candles or lux. And so I really want to thank him for it, but that's what it is. It's about design, it's about shadows. And what we need is the older generation, and it's your job to help document them. But the whole idea is to share these ideas, these experiences that will allow the younger generation to actually progress faster. You know, everybody wants to graduate and become a senior designer and you'll get there. But one thing is it does take experience. You need to go out there and you have to visually evaluate spaces. And I would say if you're going to go out there and design a gas station, for example, we've all been to gas stations, but your first thing you should do is not refer to the IES for how many lux you need in a gas station. Go out there and look at 10 of them. Look at them in a dark environment. Look at them in a bright. Look at what Howard originally did with the mobile stations with indirect lighting. Okay, that's how you're going to start to see and create this catalog in your mind of what works and what doesn't work. And then what you do is you start to explore design alternatives, create solutions, then document them and use photometrics to confirm them and then work really hard to detail them properly and then go out there and make sure they work. The problem is a lot of times people never go look at their finished jobs or young people will actually quit and move firms before they see their work completed. And the problem with that is then they're just drafting monkeys. They're not learning to design because they haven't gone through that process. And I'll tell you, being in the field, seeing your mistakes, learning to fix your mistakes, that's the best way to learn. You can't do it in a textbook or you can't do it all in a podcast. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, uh, that's, that's, that's okay. Podcasting is definitely something fun and a great way to, I think, share advice and thoughts. And it's been really fun to have you here with us today and to, to learn a little bit more about Chip's life and Chip's guide of how lighting has been here and where it can go in the future. I think bottom line is don't repeat the past, learn from it, grow on it, be observant, work hard. Is there anything else that I've missed? 
I would just say the one thing that I always try to do is to do the right thing. And as you become, you know, more senior or become an owner of a firm, some of those choices aren't always popular, but you have to do what's right, not only for your employees, for your company, maybe even for yourself, but I always try to do what's right and to do it for the lighting industry. Cause I think that as we grow, we will just become bigger and stronger altogether. Well, one thing's for sure, Chip, the lighting industry certainly has more than just one design for a minute. And I think it's wonderful that you see yourself as just a small part of it. I hope that this can be inspiring to other people in lighting, lighting designers, the future of lighting, and also the people that have been in it for a while. I really appreciate your time today. It's been fun to catch up with you and we'll talk to you again, hopefully sometime soon. Excellent. Thanks for your time. Hey, it's Sam. Thanks again for tuning in to The Light Pod, where we tell stories about people in the lighting industry, their accomplishments, and the challenges they face each and every day. One more thing, real quick. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure and head back to your podcast app to hit follow or subscribe. That's the easiest way to make sure you never miss an episode. We look forward to catching up with you again soon. Until then, cheers. Cheers.